Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. Let's take a look at some of the stories that are making scientific headlines around the world this week. And first up, a controversy that's even got governments involved. In September 2011, Dutch researcher Ron Fouchier gave a presentation at an influenza conference in which he showed how he'd been able to make, relatively easily, a form of bird flu, H5N1, that can transmit readily between mammals, which is something that the naturally occurring form of the virus, thankfully, can't yet do. The results describing the structure of what Ron Fouchier himself describes as probably one of the most dangerous viruses that you can make were sent to the journal Science for publication. But the paper has been suppressed on safety grounds, lest the details could aid terrorists in creating weapons of mass destruction. The journal Nature also has a similar bird flu paper waiting in the wings for the same reason. And now both papers are currently under review by the US's National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity. So how should sensitive but nonetheless very important scientific results like this actually get handled? To find out more, I spoke with Mark Peplow. He's the news editor at Nature, which this week asked authorities around the world this very same question. Okay, so this all revolves around some research which has been done on the avian flu virus, H5N1. Two groups of researchers have basically made a mutant form of this virus which is more easily transmissible between mammals. Actually, they've tested it in the lab and it's ferrets that they use and it's more easily transmitted just by ferrets breathing the same air. And that raises concerns that these viruses, if they escaped, could also be transmitted between humans and potentially trigger a a huge pandemic. There are two aspects to this, aren't there? One is, should we be releasing the information as to how to make these very pathogenic viruses that transmit very efficiently? Because there's a question over whether this is safe from a bioterrorism perspective. The other is the public health perspective, in order for scientists to be able to work out how to mitigate this threat, they've got to know what the threat is. Yeah, that's right. And it's something that sometimes gets lost in some of the news reporting around this, in that these mutant strains weren't born out of some reckless desire by mad scientists to push the boundaries of high-risk science. So the issue is, like you said, should this work be published? An awful lot of scientists say, yes, it absolutely should be published in full because it's important to understand how deadly these viruses are and, and potentially develop treatments against them. On the other side, there are some people uh, within the security community, but even scientists as well, that argue that the, the benefits that you gain from this sort of work are just not great enough to counter the risk of an accidental release or the possibility that a terrorist could get hold of the recipe, if you like, uh, and cook up some of this virus for themselves. Those in the security community take a broader issue, which is that some of the mechanisms for oversight of this sort of work really aren't sufficiently well developed. They're saying, look, uh, the argument about this is coming up when this work has already been done. It's about to be published. And the security community is saying, look, we need a much more stringent oversight system to make sure that these conversations start happening before the experiments go on and not after them. And where does a journal like Nature stand on this? You've got some information that you want to publish, which is for the good of the scientific community but may have political consequences. At what point does it become a problem with someone saying you can't put that out? Well, um, (laughs) because I'm the news editor of Nature, I can't actually speak on behalf of the 
the section of nature which publishes scientific manuscripts. But I know what our editor-in-chief, Phil Campbell's position is on this, and that is that they, they acknowledge the concerns about this work. And at the moment, there is no decision about whether to publish the papers or whether to publish a censored form of the papers. What we're waiting for is for the US government to provide details of if the papers are censored, how it would allow genuine researchers to obtain that detail that would inform their own work. And as long as there is a safe but efficient system for getting that information, that scientific information, to legitimate researchers who need it, then both Nature and Science have said in statements that they would be happy to publish the papers in a redacted form. So you, you basically outline what the researchers have done, but you don't give any of the recipes in public for how they did it. Mark Peplow. But what is the work at the centre of this scientific storm? Ron Fouché, the author of one of those papers. We've been working on uh, H5N1 viruses that are circulating currently in Indonesia and causing massive outbreaks. And we've been studying transmissibility of this virus to humans and between humans. Many people say H5N1 isn't a big worry because if it was going to jump into us, it would have done already. How do you respond to that? Well, it is a big worry even when it jumps into us now because it kills people. It killed more than 400 people already. And, of course, so far they've been isolated cases. But the fear is that the virus will adapt. It will change genetically such that it will become transmissible. And every case of infection of a human is a chance of the virus adapting to the human situation. So when a virus does jump out of one host species, like a bird, in the case of H5N1, to get into humans, what does it actually take for it to grow efficiently in a human, a different host, and then spread from one host to the next? We know pretty much what it takes to infect the first human. We, don't, we know very little about what it then takes to be transmissible between humans. They have to adapt to attach to other cells than they're used to attach to. These cells express receptors, and they have to adapt to new receptors. And they also have to adapt to produce enough virus such that uh, the virus can spread. And it does so by making genetic changes in the polymerase complex, and the polymerase complex is responsible for multiplication of the virus. But really, we don't know anything about what it takes to then become transmissible. Many of the cases of H5N1 we've seen tend to stop with the person that gets infected, so they get it from a bird, but then they don't pass it on. So how can they die of it, yet not pass it on? So many of the human cases of infection, they contract the virus in, in odd ways, by drinking raw duck blood, for instance, or by getting the snot out of the beak of a fighting cock. And so they get huge amounts of virus in, and they get it generally deep down the respiratory tract. And deep down the respiratory tract, the virus can replicate quite efficiently. These individuals develop pneumonia, and they die as a consequence of that. The virus is not particularly well adapted to replicate in the upper respiratory tract. And we have always said that as soon as the virus gains the ability to replicate in the upper respiratory tract of humans, then we might be in trouble. So how are you trying to work out what it's going to take? We borrowed evidence from uh, previous pandemics when also avian viruses changed and then caused infections in, in humans. And some of the changes that occurred in those pandemic viruses we have introduced by genetic manipulation into an H5N1 virus. And that H5N1 virus now replicates in the upper respiratory tract of mammals. Now that virus has many of the hallmarks of a pandemic virus, but we found initially that it still was not transmitted. It was very surprising. 
And so what we did then is to put it into a mammal, let the virus adapt to the mammal for a few rounds, and then take that virus, and then that virus will become transmissible. And so by intelligent experiments, we were able to introduce three mutations into the virus. And then because we didn't know the rest of it, we let the mammals do the rest of the story, and they accumulated uh, two or three additional mutations are enough to make this virus transmissible. Every time the virus goes into a, a new mammalian host, it has a new chance to adapt. Yes, that's correct. So th- that's the message that we're sending out. Many of the mutations that we have introduced with genetic modification are already found in the field. So it's now a matter of chance of a mammal running into a chicken that has a virus with those mutations. And then in that mammal, it can accumulate the extra mutations, and then uh, we would be in trouble. You're saying that the mutations that you put into your experimental virus already exist out in nature if you know where to look for them? Yes. So far, there there have been uh, about 500 million birds infected, and we have sequenced the genome of about 1,000 of them. And in those 1,000 genomes, we already find the exact same mutations that we find in the transmissible virus. But not all in the same virus. Just not in the uh, combination of five or six that we find in the transmissible virus. Once you put those mutations or changes into H5N1, does it remain as pathogenic, as virulent as the wild type? Or does it have to surrender some of that virulence in order to become fit to reproduce in humans instead of its more native bird? Well, we had all hoped and also thought that this virus would be reduced in virulence. But the first quick and dirty experiments that we've done suggest that the virus is just as hot as the wild-type virus, and it kills a ferret in three days. In humans, it kills 95% of the individuals that get infected. What's the moral of the story? To be honest, I think that many scientists have, well, not just scientists, but also the policymakers, are, are relaxing a little bit too much on H5N1 at the moment. Many scientists believe that only H1, H2 and H3 viruses can cause pandemics rather than H5. And many scientists think that it has to involve pigs. Um, Many scientists think that viruses need to shuffle their genes rather than just build in mutations. And this uh, investigation really showed that we should not be so relaxed about uh, how to uh, deal with the H5 and 1 virus. And I think the policy should be to start stamping out H5N1. Ron Fouchier from the Erasmus Medical Centre in the Netherlands. He was speaking with me at the ESWI Influenza Conference held in Malta last September. Helen. Well, also this week, scientists have discovered the deepest and possibly the hottest undersea volcanic vents ever found, and they're encrusted in extraordinary deep-sea life. The Cayman Trough gouges a gigantic trench in the sea floor, five kilometres beneath the waves in the Caribbean Sea. And it's there that a team of researchers led by Douglas Connolly and John Copley from the National Oceanography Centre in Southampton detected a vast plume of scorching, mineral-laden water reaching a kilometre up into the water column. Here's geochemist Douglas Connolly. Cayman Trough was identified quite a while ago as one of the interesting sort of missing pieces of the global ridge systems. It's isolated, it's on its own, and it's also one of the deepest places and one of the slowest spreading. It had been postulated that there wouldn't be any bending activity there at all. Basically, activity is dependent upon the spreading rate. It's one of the old models that was out there. In the deep site, we've got extremely high pressure and perhaps the existence of supercritical fluids. 
These supercritical fluids behave very strangely under the laws of physics. They're lighter than water, but denser than vapour. And the team think that these extremely deep vents, which they call the BB vent field after the first scientist to explore the deep ocean, could be one of the only places on the planet to study these fluids in a natural setting, including their effect on the way minerals are leached out of rocks. Connolly and his colleagues found unusually high concentrations of copper in the fluids rising up from the vent, which indicates the presence of these supercritical fluids. And along with the height of the vent plume, four times higher than that of other deep-sea vents, suggests the water could be as hot as 450 degrees Celsius. And despite the enormous pressure, life down there is thriving, as the team discovered by sending down a robotic submarine to take a look. Here's marine biologist John Copley. Well, for biologists, we've wanted to go and explore the Cayman Trough for deep-sea vents for nearly a decade because we thought it might be a, a key missing piece in a global jigsaw puzzle. What was a surprise was actually, yes, we've seen new species of shrimp down there. There may be a new species of anemone at the deepest site in, in their hundreds around these sort of cracks that seep warm water from the seafloor. But these are very similar to animals that we know, but from a long way away, two and a half thousand miles away in, in the Atlantic. And it suggests there's a lot more traffic. Animals are getting around in the deep ocean, perhaps a lot more than we thought before. Another world first came from this study, and that was the unexpected discovery of a hot vent in a much shallower site on the upper slopes of an undersea mountain called Mount Dent. This sticks three kilometres above the Cayman Trough, although its peak is still two kilometres beneath the waves. The Mount Dent vent was also found to be swarming in life, and since submerged mountains like this are quite common, it hints that deep-sea vents could be a lot more widespread than previously thought, and they could offer stepping stones for vent animals to disperse between vent fields. Brilliant. Helen, thank you very much for fascinating stuff. Now, with more top stories from the week in science, here's Mira Senthalingam with our Naked Scientist News Flash, kicking off with some potentially bad news for any smokers out there who recently made resolutions to quit. Nicotine replacement therapies have been shown to have no long-term benefits for smokers trying to kick the habit. Following 787 adult smokers over five years, Gregory Connolly and colleagues from the Harvard School of Public Health found one-third of smokers relapsed when trying to quit and saw no difference in this relapse between those using therapies such as nicotine gums and patches to those using other methods or going cold turkey in the long term. There's multiple factors for relapse. There's social cues, there's cigarette-driven cues, and there's probably a diminishing over time of the personal will to quit. In the past, studies have looked at laboratory trials and then taking those findings and put them in the real world. What we found, when you put it in the real world and you look at the long term, they're just not having an effect. So what we have to do is combine our laboratory trials with trials in the real world, combine them, learn, develop better mechanisms, and then make this planet smoke-free. Our galaxy has as many planets as it does stars, according to scientists at the University of St Andrews. Using gravitational microlensing to find planets located further away from their stars, Martin Dominic and colleagues discovered a large population of planets within the Milky Way, which calculations have been estimated to equal the total number of stars in the galaxy, and further showed that stars without associated planets could be the exception. In the Milky Way alone, we think there are 100 billion to 300 billion stars in there. Now we took a small sample we find that the number of planets is actually comparable to the number of stars or even larger. So that means just in the Milky Way alone, there could be 100 billion planets. Interestingly, we find that 
the abundance of the smaller planets is much larger than the number of gas giant planets like Jupiter or Saturn. And that is quite interesting if, if you think about places where you want to look for life. Fungi could hold the key to fighting lead pollution, states research published in the journal Current Biology. A known environmental pollutant, lead is a widely used structural and industrial material worldwide, with previous efforts to contain or control levels in contaminated sites proving challenging. Now, Geoffrey Gadd from the University of Dundee has found that fungi can be used to transform lead into pyromorphite, its most stable mineral form. We've made quite a remarkable discovery in that certain fungi can attack the metallic lead, which will result in a completely new mineral form, pyromorphite, which is a kind of lead phosphate. And in fact, it's uh, the most stable lead mineral that, that exists in the Earth's crust. So we've shown that really uh, activities of living organisms can do this, which gives the intriguing possibility that perhaps somehow you could encourage the organisms to do this or act themselves in polluted sites. And finally, a carnivorous plant residing in the tropical savannas of the Brazilian Cerrado region uses sticky underground leaves to trap and digest nematodes. Caio Pereira from the State University of Campinas fed nematodes labelled with isotopes of nitrogen to the plant Philcoxia minensis and found significant levels of nitrogen thereafter in the leaves of the plant, proving the plant's digestion and absorption of the worms. It's thought the plant uses phosphatase enzymes to directly break down the nematodes for nutrition. This plant is producing enzymes and digesting the nematodes that get trapped within the sticky leaves. And this suggests that there is more conspicuous ways and more strategy that the plants are using to secure nutrients, especially in severely stressed habitats. And the work was published this week in the journal PNAS. That was Mira Synthalingham. And all of those stories and everything we've been discussing on this week's show can be found along with their references on our website. That's thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.